Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, but this evening, we have a special treat. Um, we have Paul Lafarge. Um, Paul Lafarge is the author of two previous novels, The Artist of the Missing and Houseman or the Distinction, um, and also a book of imaginary dreams, The Facts of Winter. And I went to his website today, and I saw, I, I guess, the new paperback cover, and it's gorgeous. Um, his uh, short stories have appeared in McSweeney's, Harper's, uh, Conjunctions, and elsewhere, and uh, his nonfiction in Believer in book form, Playboy and Cabinet. He teaches at Bard College. He's here this evening with his new novel, which has been in the works for 10 years. It's called Luminous Airplanes. Um, and I can't wait to hear all about it because I know he's going to be reading to us from the hard copy of it. But I went and explored the hypertext version of it as well, which uh, just looks fantastic. Um, so please uh, give a warm welcome for um, Paul Lafarge. up a little bit. Um, hi, thanks for coming. I I realized kind of belatedly that I'm in competition with uh, Game 7 of the World Series, so it's really nice to see anybody here. I imagine I would just read to the plant. Um, Luminous Airplanes is, uh, as, um, as you said, both uh, a novel and a web-based fiction which both um, expands the novel sideways in directions that aren't taken within the book itself, and then extends it past the point where the story ends. And the website is www.luminousairplanes.com. I feel like I'm doing like a, a radio advertisement. Um, and I encourage you to take a look at it if you feel like um, wasting some a medium amount or a large amount of time. It's about three times the size of the book, so the time-wasting potential is very great. Uh, and I should, it also contains about half the text of the book, I should say, and eventually the whole text of the book will be online. And we can talk about that afterwards in the Q&A if you want. Um, what I want to read tonight is from the book. And Luminous Airplanes tells the story of a young computer programmer who has been living in San Francisco through, here, let me just see if I can do this so I can both see and speak at the same time, through the dot-com era. And um, when his grandfather dies in the fall of 2000, he is the family member who gets the onerous duty of returning to his grandparents' house in a small town in upstate New York to sort through their things before the house is sold. And most of the book happens in this town and in this house as he's undertaking this sorting. And while he is going through all of the physical 
things that his grandparents have left behind. He finds himself going through his own life in a kind of a similar way and trying to understand how he got to the point where he is. Um, and he revisits a number of things that have happened to him in the past. So what I'm going to read now is a scene uh, that happens when he is um, about 12 years old. It's um, right before he is expelled from the Netherlands School for Boys in New York City. In class, I sat by the window, looked at the sky, and thought about my invented world. My teachers were happy to let me go. I was quiet, and as long as I did well on their tests and showed no signs of abusing alcohol or drugs, unlike August Waxman, who came to school one day with pupils the width of pencil leads and his shirt buttoned askew and said, say what? to every question, no matter how many times you asked it. Mr. Fitch didn't mind if I slumped forward in my chair, and Mrs. Booth let my unrolled French R pass without comment. Only Mr. Savage, who taught American history, still wanted something from me. You asleep, he shouted, when I rested my head against the wall. Wake up, we're making history here. He called on me to answer questions and embarrassed me when I didn't know the answers, oblivious to the rolling eyes of my classmates who had seen me embarrassed so many times that they could take only a moderate pleasure from it. Mr. Savage didn't know this. He was a new teacher who had come to Netherland the year before from a public school in Detroit. To look at him, you would have said he still belonged there. He was short and dark with menacing eyebrows and a five o'clock shadow that was in full bloom by 1.15. He dressed like a plumber at a funeral. Mr. Savage had made the mistake of telling last year's American history class that he had a black belt in jiu-jitsu and could flip someone twice his weight. Um, now, when he bored us, Ronald Kaplan would raise his hand and ask, Um, is it hard to learn jiu-jitsu? And when one of us misbehaved, the others would shout, Flip him! Flip him! <laughs> Mr. Savage was not amused. Violence is serious, he said, the first week of American history. If you learn only one thing this year, it should be that violence is serious. Violence is serious, I wrote in my notebook. Then I stopped listening again. Hey, how's the weather? Mr. Savage called to me. I opened my eyes. Partly cloudy. You think it's going to rain? I looked at the sky. Low, lumpy clouds grazed the spire of the chapel, the black weather vane with a figure of a Dutchman atop it, the school's emblem, which may be familiar to some members of the audience who went to this school. Um, it might. No chance, said Mr. Savage. Those are stratocumulus clouds. You never get rain from stratocumulus. He continued the lesson as if this checking of the weather were an ordinary event. Gideon Peel looked at me and rolled his eyes. I couldn't tell if he meant that I was an asshole for not knowing that stratocumulus clouds were not rain-bearing, or that Mr. Savage was crazy for telling me so. I rolled my eyes back and returned to the window. Mr. Savage stopped me as I was leaving class. Why don't you come with me, he said. He led me to one of the small rooms, furnished with a coffee warmer, some vinyl chairs, and a strong sour smell, where the teachers lived. He asked if I wanted coffee. I said no. You aren't paying attention, said Mr. Savage. You don't notice anything. It's like you're living on another planet. How close you are to the truth, I thought. Are you like this in all your classes? Yes. 
It was the truth, and besides, he was a decent person, and I didn't want him to think that I found his class any less interesting than the others. What is it? What do you think about? Here I should interrupt and say that the narrator is involved in trying to make a, a computer game using the school's computers, which is utterly beyond his power. I wanted to tell him about the game, but it would have been too humiliating to confess that I was consumed by a project I didn't have any idea how to do and would probably never figure out. The secret of it was all I had. If I told him, I would have nothing. Are you thinking about girls? I could understand that, Mr. Savage said. I think it's terrible that you don't have girls here. You're like, he waved his hand again, you're like astronauts on some space station up in orbit. He shifted his jacket, which was, I saw, too small for him. In another life, he could have been an athlete or a bouncer. I was afraid that he would pick me up by the lapels of my jacket, lean his stubbled face to mine, and whisper threats featuring the word use, even though there was only one of me. I giggled. Astronauts, it's funny, right? But you have to learn how to live on Earth. Mr. Savage struck his knee with his fist. Help me, he said. If there was one thing you wanted to learn, something you really wanted to know, what would it be? I don't know. Anything, said Mr. Savage. Just one thing you want to know. I looked at the coffee pot. Maybe the discovery of America. It came into my mind because of what Charles had told me, and here I'll open the second and last parenthesis, say that the narrator's uncle has informed him that his absent father ran away to discover America. Close parenthesis. Really, said Mr. Savage, who discovered America? Columbus or Leif Erikson, I said. We had it in world history last year. But you're not convinced, is that right? I guess. Good. Mr. Savage tapped my breastbone with a thick finger. That's a good place to begin. The next day, Mr. Savage asked how many of us had read Plato's Timaeus. Not a hand went up. In that dialogue, Mr. Savage said, Critias tells Socrates a story that comes from the priests at Thebes, which is where? Andrew, yes, Egypt. Thebes is the oldest city in Egypt, which is quite possibly the oldest nation in the world. The priests at Thebes told a story which was already thousands of years old about a land to the west of the Western Ocean, which they called Atlantis. He wrote Atlantis on the blackboard. Anyone heard of it? So we embarked on the discovery of America, the discovery of the discovery of America. Strange facts were coming to light in Mr. Savage's sixth period class. Stories about seafarers and prevailing winds, about the climate in Greenland and the Gulf Stream, about carved stones and burial mounds. For a week, it couldn't have been more than a week, we studied the people who might have discovered America, not only the Vikings, but the Phoenicians, the Basques, the Chinese. There was a story that Welshmen had been the first Europeans to arrive in North America, so we learned about that. Mr. Savage spared us nothing, not even the story that the Indians were one of the lost tribes of Israel, the proof of which was that the Jews, like the Indians, once lived in tents, that both races had been known to anoint themselves with oil, and that the Indians did not eat pork, or at least some of them didn't. Our textbook had nothing to say on these subjects, so Mr. Savage photocopied the maps drawn by people who had seen much, a little, or none of the New World. The fantastic maps that show California as a peninsula the size of all the rest of North America, 
the maps that stock the interior with lions, serpents, dragons, and gold. Why gold? Matt, yes. Good, yes. So that people would keep exploring. We kept exploring. Mr. Savage talked about cannibals, about how each tribe the Europeans met reported that there was another tribe over there who ate human flesh. Anyone want to draw any conclusions? Andrew, yes. Reactions to the unit, which put us a week behind the other section of American history, taught by Mr. Rye, a very tall man with yellow teeth, were mixed. Man is crazy, said Gideon Peel after the first class. He smoked too much weed. He is a disciple of the pipe, Ronald Kaplan said. His thoughts are unsound. David Metzger liked the idea that the Indians were from Israel. Jews, yo. He pumped his fist in the air. You honkies can all get off our land. Dude, even if the Indians were Jews, that doesn't make us honkies, said Gideon Peel. You are so a honky, said Ronald Kaplan, whose father was Jewish. And besides, we did this last year. History is repeating itself, man. I kept quiet. There was no way I could have explained what I felt when I looked at the maps, how, running my finger over the big whiteness between the coasts, I went queasy with excitement, as though what Charles had told me was literally true, and my father was hidden somewhere on the map, a tiny black dot, not reproduced at this scale, but there all the same, as though when I looked at the map, I was also in some obscure, magical way, looking for him. At the end of the week, Mr. Savage divided us into groups, each of which had to make the case that a different people had discovered America. The group that made the most convincing argument would receive a pizza lunch. I was with David Metzger, Andrew Ames, and Matt Bark, the Chinese, not a good assignment. We met in the school library, where we found no books on the subject of the Chinese discovery of America, no mention of it even. Well, so we make it up, said Matt Bark. We can't make it up. That's plagiarism, said David Metzger. We argued about whether it was plagiarism if you were just lying and concluded that it might be all right. But I held out for facts. There are no facts, said Matt Bark. Just rock and roll, said David Metzger. It's not fair, Andrew Ames said. We should have got the Vikings. I said that I could probably find some facts, and that afternoon I took the Broadway bus to the public library on Fifth Avenue and 42nd Street. It was the first time I'd ever gone there, and of course I wasn't allowed in. Only adults could enter the reading room. My first encounter with the library was an anticlimax. I was shunted to the Mid-Manhattan Library two blocks south, where men in smelly coats coughed in the fluorescent light. I leafed through a book on the Chinese Navy and another on ancient seafarers and learned about the Polynesian Islanders who navigated by means of knotted strings. An interesting subject, but not one that convinced Matt Bark to change his plan. String? Fuck, this isn't a report on string. But imagine if the Chinese had these string maps, Matt put up his hand. Shut up, weather boy. <laughs> weather boy. David Metzger laughed. You shut up, I said. No one acknowledged me. I slumped in my chair and closed my eyes. There was no use in fighting them. The facts were all on their side. How could I argue when I didn't know what kinds of clouds rained and what kinds didn't? On the appointed day, Gideon Peel reported to our class that archaeologists had found Norse houses in northern Newfoundland dating from around the year 1000. If the Vikings hadn't discovered America, he concluded prudently, at least they'd been here before Columbus.
John DeLuca stumped for the Phoenicians, the first masters of the ocean. He described the Phoenician inscriptions found on rocks in Brazil and also certain man-sized slabs of stone found on a cave in New Hampshire, which, he said, smiling, were probably sacrificial altars left behind by the Phoenician priests. John explained that the Phoenicians sacrificed human beings to the great god Baal, whose wrath could be appeased only by blood. So probably virgins had been tied to these New Hampshire slabs and stabbed and stabbed with bronze daggers, which, by the way, people had also found in New England. When the harvest was bad, or the wind blew the wrong way, or someone was angry, whoa, human sacrifice, the blood of the virgins steamed on the cold stone, and John's smile grew wider and wider, and the great god Baal too was pleased, because he was a god of war and destruction, and he could drink gallons of blood. Okay, John, thanks, Mr. Savage said. Wayne Echeverria spoke briefly for the Basques. Then Matt Bark gave our group's report. On a certain Admiral Ho, who was blown across the Pacific by a storm and founded a Chinese colony on the California coast. The proof of it was that there was more Chinese food on the west coast of America than there was on the east. Not to mention the dish that was actually called Admiral Ho's shrimp, which Matt Bark had eaten in Los Angeles, and which was, he assured us, very tasty. And then there were the Chinese place names in America. For instance, San Francisco Ho and San Diego Ho, and even, even the legendary Eldorad Ronald Kaplan began making strangled laughter noises halfway through, and before Matt Bart could finish, he put his head on his desk and moaned, oh my God, oh my God, and he wouldn't look up, even when Mr. Savage yelled at him to stop, and that was it, everyone was laughing, and when Mr. Savage tried to raise Ronald back to a sitting position, Gideon Peel thought we were finally going to get the jujitsu demonstration, and howled, flip. Mr. Savage took Ronald and Gideon out and stood them in the hall. He came back and told the rest of us quietly, without anger, that it was good to laugh sometimes, and that it was true. Sometimes the things you studied as history were just stories that someone had made up. But the important thing in this case was to make up a good story. He didn't expect us to understand, but he would tell us anyway that this effort was in some ways the most important thing, more important than memorizing dates or the amendments to the Constitution, and that if we learned anything from him that year, it was that we should try as hard as we could to tell a good story. If we, if we tried hard enough, we would get to the truth somehow. No one reminded him that if we learned one thing, it was supposed to be that violence was serious, but we must all have been thinking it. The Vikings win, Mr. Savage said. I tried to catch his eye, to communicate that it hadn't been my fault. I had tried to reach the truth, but he wouldn't look at me. The Vikings went out to pizza, and American history picked up where it had left off. The Puritans were making treaties with the Indians. The French were up to no good in the woods. The Dutch founded schools, among them Nederland. Glory, glory be. The story about Admiral Ho got back to Mr. Rye, who was the head of the history department. And Mr. Rye talked to Mr. Savage, and that was it. There were no more deviations from the textbook. Thanks.
So um, thank you all for coming. And uh, I'd be happy to answer questions if you want to ask them. Um, yeah, I'm question. About the hypertext thing. OK. Can talk a little bit more about like, what, yeah. what inspired you to um, Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, the hypertext was always kind of a part of this project. I've known since the beginning that I wanted to tell a story which could branch and go in different directions so that you could follow different paths through it and so that it could fork and follow its own kind of logic. It wouldn't start in one place and go in a straight line from beginning to end and then stop. It would begin somewhere and then kind of radiate outwards like a distracted person's mind. And it would go this way and then it would go that way. And you could choose which way you wanted to go and back up and go the other way. And in part, it's because that's, that's who this guy is. This is a distracted person trying to make sense of his world and trying to gather his attention in a way that will like explain life to him. But his attention is all over the map. And I wanted to tell a story that was a little bit all over the map. The other thing that um, happens, and I think I can talk about it with, without giving away very much of the story, is that the book part of this project happens all before September 11th, more or less. And it's about the experience of being in a small town, but also about the experience of being in a small world, about the experience of living in a, a kind of bubble and feeling isolated from everything else and being kind of unaware, being enclosed. And what happens is that after September 11th, the narrator feels at sea. He's kind of lost in the world. He realizes that things are going on, but he doesn't understand them, and he doesn't know how to make sense of them. And the, the immersive text, which is what we're calling the hypertext, this thing on the web which has all of its ramifications, is his way of trying to expand his thinking to encompass what feels to him like both a larger and a less coherent universe. So that's how it came about. The way I built it is the way that any writer builds anything, which is like extremely slowly and with great personal suffering and, you know, a lot of grumpy days and a lot of trial and error. Um, one of the themes that, that recurs through both the book and the immersive text is uh, the, the uh, history of um, sort of pre-Wright Brothers aviation and this idea that people kept trying and kept trying and kept trying to build flying machines for thousands of years without any reason to think that you could actually fly. It's a very optimistic endeavor when you look at the track record, you know, the if you got the consultants in to advise you on this, they would say, well, actually, you know, the numbers suggest that you should be in a different business. And, you know, of course, they were all right in some ultimate way um, about the, the viability of the technology. And trying to put this together, I can't say if I've got it right or not, but I, I've spent a lot of time feeling like the people, you know, the kind of the 19th century hobbyist engineer in his shed with a lot of like wood parts and some hinges trying to trying to make something that would get off the ground. Hi. Um, so when you were in San Francisco in the 90s, sort of yeah. height of hypertext, mm -hmm. were you a fan? No. Okay. So hypertext, hypertext fiction has a kind of a uh, a checkered history. It was it, it was something that, that 
became practically possible in the late 80s, barely practically possible, and was herald got a lot of attention in the early mid-90s as the future of fiction. And there was this idea that in 10 or 15 years, the book would vanish from the earth and we would all be reading on CD-ROM, <laughs> um, which uh, you may have noticed hasn't happened. And to the extent that it has happened and we're reading on the Kindle or the iPad or with a e-reader, whatever it is, the iPhone, um, what we're reading is still linear books. We've just taken, the publisher just takes the same file and, you know, emails it to Amazon and poof, you know, it's Kindleized and they've got another profit stream. But the form of the book hasn't changed at all in response to the technology. In part, I think that's because early hypertext was quite cumbersome. The technology was fairly poor. The screen resolution was miserable. No one was in the habit of reading on screens. Um, in part, I think it's because the authors of 90s hypertext had no idea how to use the technology. Very few, if any of them, were designers. Only one who I can think of, a guy named Jeff Ryman, was an actual practicing web designer and had any idea how interfaces work. And it turns out that if you want to build something that people use, you actually have to like know how to make things. You know, it's as if it's as if someone had said the future of the book is in aluminum sheds, and all the writers ran off to build aluminum sheds, but none of them knew how to weld. You know, um, and then the third thing I guess that happened in the '90s is that no one, as this is maybe a, a more subjective feeling, but. Very few of the authors of those hypertexts had any sense of the magnitude of the technical challenge of writing a story which works when you read it along multiple paths and which can actually sustain your interest over the kind of labor and engagement which the form demands. So writing something that's interesting is, turns out just to be super hard. And the people who've done it are mostly people who wrote for print. Um, Nabokov's Pale Fire, right, which takes the form of a poem and a commentary and it's all over the place. Or Cortazar's Hopscotch, a novel that you can read in different orders depending on which path you follow through it. It's technically something you, you got to be really like, you know, on your game to figure out how to make it work. So for that, just to wrap that up, that's kind of why I'm not a fan of those things because I don't think they, they ever really like got it right. If you develop the, the idea of the narrator in the printed book, what happens to that notion in the immersive the narrator is also the narrator of the immersive text. He returns, this book ends, within the world of the narrative, this book is written in the spring of 2000, er, 2001. It culminates more or less sort of on the eve of September 11th. The narrator returns to the story of his own life about six years later. His things have happened to him, his life has, his, his, his trajectory, you know, it, there's this idea that plot kind of has a trajectory that goes like this. His trajectory is kind of like that. So he's, he's gone even farther down the, the narrative plummet of his life. And he returns to this old idea, which he's had ever since he was a kid, of working with the computer to tell a story, which could go on forever. Um, but it's, it remains his story. And he tells all of it even as he incorporates stories which other people have told him and things that he's read and things that he's thought about. Um, he's still the, the directing presence. So it's, it's 
the, the decision of the character, the, the narrator as a character to make it into a hypertext novel. He makes that decision. Yes. In the novel, in the well, the, uh, the printed version of the novel has no reference to the hypertext, okay. except at the very end. So I'm just kind of curious if, if you're uh, imagining the, the psychology hmm. uh, behind that. Does, mm -hmm. does he imagine, uh, just because there's a, there's a really great book um, by a Hungarian writer called War and War, uh -huh. uh, this guy who says that he's going to uh, put uh, this manuscript that he finds in an archive yeah. into the internet, and this is in the late 90s, yeah. because he imagines that it will be there forever, like it's right. going to be going to right. last longer than any book. Right. Does he have any thoughts about whether this is something that's going to be really, have, have a lot of posterity or something no. really finite? No, neither he nor I know very much about what the future of this form is because it's not archival and the technology will obsolesce kind of fast. Um, the narrative actually, which the narrator will end up telling on the website is that having written some version of what's in the book, he goes on in private and builds the website. And it's through the website that an editor contacts him. There's this kind of discovery story um, where some insomniac junior editor at Ferris Strauss and Giroux, who shares a name with my editor, emails him and says, I was reading through your website. It's a complete mess. It's kind of a disaster. But I feel that in here somewhere there might be the makings of a book. And so they, they go through and assemble from within this, this giant text space a book which can be published. The publication of the book is, a, is an event within the story of, in the immersive text, which triggers, it's actually sort of a turning point in the plot and stuff happens because of it. So it's, yeah. <laughs> is that the story of the genesis of this book? I mean, as, you, as you're writing this, did you conceive of a, a book between covers in a separate world? Yeah. No. For, for me, it's always, the project has always had these two parts, and it's been clear that it would be a book, and that then it would also be something much larger, that it would be online. Because I've been interested for a while in this experience of kind of trying to get from a small form to a big one, and this may be the most literal-minded way of doing that. I'm sure, you know, there would be a way of doing it symbolically, which would be much more effective than this, but somehow the the form compelled me. I don't know what else to say. I'm deeply invested in books. I read print books much more than I read online still. And for me to, to move completely away from the book was somehow too dizzying a step. But I'm also coming from San Francisco in the 90s. I'm also interested and kind of passionate about the possibility of this new-ish form. And I wanted to explore it. So this was my way of having my cake and eating it too. Um, whether anyone else will experience it even as cake, I don't know. <laughs> oh. Yeah? Would you talk about the role of secrecy in your book, both the, um, well? both the printed text and the immersive text have lots of historical secrets and personal secrets. There's even a secret society in the immersive text. There is a secret society in the immersive text. Um, Gosh, this is one of those questions. It's an illuminating question because I hadn't really thought about secrecy as a theme. But of course it is. It's about the secrets of the narrator's past, right? And I think one of the things it's about, maybe more than sort of what the real secrets are, is this idea that drives the narrator, which is that if only he knew what the secrets were, 
everything would be okay. The secrets represent for him, whether it's the secret society in his college, you know, into which he was never inducted because of his character defects, which are many and obvious, um, or the secrets of the, the world of caves, which is something that becomes greatly interesting to him um, more on the, in the immersive text than in the book, or the secrets of his family, which are at some level actually unknowable. They concern people who, I got trying to swat a bug and I swatted the microphone. Um, because they concern people who are no longer alive and who can't tell their own stories. It's not clear that knowing that, whether, if he knew the secrets, it's not clear that things would be better for him. It's more this kind of possibility that there's something out there which would make his understanding complete. Right? That's what the secret is for him. It's this promise that there could be another place he could go. And if he were there, it's that land, you know, just a little bit farther on. It's like the old sort of explore, discovery of America thing. It's like, oh, just go over those mountains and you'll get to the river that leads to the Pacific. Oh, well, we crossed those mountains. Well, okay, maybe it was the next mountains. That's, that's the secret for him. That's how that works. Um, well, listen, thank you all. Oh, do you, yeah, I, I don't want to keep you too long, but I'll maybe do one last question. Okay, I'll answer it quickly. Well, one, have you had any responses from people who have only engaged with the hypertext? Uh, fewer than I've had from people who've read the book first and engaged with the hypertext. I've had, yeah, I guess, you know, off the top of my head, nobody has, has responded to it yet to me. Lazy slash traditionalist readers. Is there any plan to release like the entire uh, hyper text? Uh, hyper text? as a printed text, um, or even as you know, non-hyper, but online. As non-hyper, as 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 text which has been treated for its hyperactivity yeah. disorder. Um, no, there's no plan to do that, and I'll tell you why. It's because. Um, I mean, there may be, there's a, there is, I think, the question of history and sort of archivability is maybe the, the most urgent reason why that, that plan would make sense to me. Because otherwise, this stuff is on servers in Texas right now. You know, it's backed up on my computer. But that's a very unstable state for something which is 150, 200,000 words long, most of which has never been printed on paper. Um, and at some point, it could just vanish. So that would be an incentive to, to print and bind. But, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I, I had the, the idea for the immersive text in my head for a long time, and I'd written a lot of it in parts without having the actual technological infrastructure to assemble it. There's like a whole kind of like content management system that we had to make in order to, to put this thing online. And I only had that ready recently in a way that it was actually usable and I could add stuff and link it and see how it worked. And there was this moment for me which came this spring when I was adding together all of these parts which have been sitting in files on my computer for years. And all of a sudden I could see how they fit. And it was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. The book was necessary. I needed the book. But for me, the excitement now is in making this form which doesn't go in a straight line. And to collapse that back into a book feels kind of like I'd be defeating, you know, I'd be sort of getting rid of the thing that I'm excited about, which is 
being able to move in all these different ways at once. That was a long answer. Sorry, I promised you a short one. Um, thank you for your patience. I'd be happy to sign books, and, and thanks again for coming. You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.